1: I'm Carla Nappy and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with David Peets about his really fascinating new book, Yellow River, The Problem of Water in Modern China. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press. And the problem of water in modern China is also a global problem. What the book does is it takes us into the context of contemporary um, issues with water management and the concomitant environmental crises and problems that emerge from that and lays a historical foundation for understanding how we got here, and in doing so, how we might move forward. So what the book does is bring us into the ecological context of the North China Plain, which is the focus of the study, and then guide us through a history that traverses the imperial period, the late imperial period in particular, takes us into the 19th century and early 20th century, looks very carefully at what's happening under nationalist rule of China, and then segues into what is very much at the heart of the book, um, and that is a careful exploration of Maoist policies, especially relating to water management from 1949 to 1979. Now, that becomes really important because one of the arguments of the book is going to be that those policies and the dramatic environmental changes that are accomplished in the Maoist period wind up having pretty dramatic environmental and actually global consequences after that period. The book is not arguing that there's something about um, uh, what we've sometimes called Mao's war on nature that emerged Ex nihilo under Mao, and then had consequences thereafter. Instead, it's showing that there's a long history of um, decisions relating to statecraft and water management that kind of came to a head under Mao and continued thereafter to exert a pretty strong influence. So it's a book about the importance of historical context and having a historical um, sensibility about understanding um, not just the past but also the present and the future in terms of ecology, environment, and water. It's a fascinating book. You don't have to know anything about China in order to get a lot out of this. So I hope you enjoy. I definitely enjoyed talking with David, um, and he has a lot of fascinating things to say in this interview and also in the book. So I hope you have a chance to take a look at that. And in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. I'm here today with David Peets to talk about his new book, Yellow River. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, David, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you, Carla. It's my pleasure.
1: So, David, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background and specifically what brought you to work in the history of modern China?
0: Sure. Well, I, uh, long story short, I guess, is that it was uh, it was quite by accident um after graduating uh with an undergraduate uh degree in uh, history and english literature i was initially attending uh, intending on going to graduate uh, school uh in western european history but um i hadn't really prepared for that i hadn't taken the gra- hadn't taken the graduate record examination during my senior year so i had um Uh, A little bit of time, I guess, that I was not quite sure what to do with, and um, I had uh, uh, a undergraduate advisor who suggested that I that I go to China where she had been the year before as a visiting instructor of English at the Tianjin Foreign Languages Institute and so uh she sort of helped arrange for me to uh to go to the Foreign Languages Institute to study Chinese for a year I hadn't studied as an undergraduate and I can I can distinctly remember in O'Hare Airport uh, picking up a Berlitz Chinese phrase book because I really did not know <laughs> A word of Chinese. Um, but in any event, long story, long story short, uh, spent a year, this was, uh, in 1986, uh, 87, then spent a subsequent year teaching English at a different institution in Tianjin. And just by virtue of being in China, uh, for those two years, I became, uh, I became intensely interested in, uh, uh, happenings going around me in China and, and decided that I would pursue that, um, Uh, for my graduate, for my graduate education. Um, and so I went to graduate school, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. My advisor was Bill Kirby. And, um, uh, after a certain period, finished my dissertation in 1998. Um, Then had my first tenured track position at Assumption College in in Worcester, Massachusetts for a couple of years. Then I went to Washington State uh, University where I was for 12 years. And then just this past year have relocated to the University of Arizona in the East Asian Studies Department.
1: Great. So the book that we're talking about today explores, um, as you put it in the book, China's contemporary water challenges from a historical perspective, and that historical perspective is going to be really, really important, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Now, it pays special attention to the Maoist period. This is roughly 1949 to 1979 for listeners who might be unfamiliar with that, and this is a time when there was an unprecedented development of water resources on the North China Plain. So the book, uh, as well as presenting this, asks How did China reach its current state of water insecurity, and what might it mean for both China and the broader global community that it's part of? So, David, how did you come to work on this particular uh, project on sort of water management specifically, and what brought you to a decision to write a book-length monograph about it?
0: Yeah. Well it really grew out of my uh, doctoral dissertation um, my uh, dissertation focused on an institutional history of an organization called the Hawaii River Conservancy Commission during the nationalist period that is to say um, primarily in the 1930s and so it was really by virtue of that study um, that I became more situated I guess uh, into a field you know we would refer to as environmental history but i'm also interested in the history of of technology and um really as I was looking and working on my dissertation there was a a really plentiful uh, amount of material on the Yellow River that I had encountered in the archives and just as I was projecting forward as I was completing my dissertation research, in some ways I suppose it it made sense to think about the kinds of issues that I was looking at during the Republican period or the Nationalist period and extend those into the post-1949 period And certainly after 1949, the Yellow River became uh, a real... Focal point for um, for the the government of the People's Republic of China uh, to try and reverse the uh, kinds of ecological declines that had occurred in the valley, really since the mid nineteenth century, and so um, so that's how I guess I came upon the particular study of the Yellow River. And as you mentioned, um, certainly during the nineteen nineties, late nineteen nineties, at the time I was. Finishing my dissertation, there were, uh, many, many news reports, um, about the Yellow River drying up. It was a, it was a dry decade during the 1990s, but here it was, you know, the, the Yellow River with all of its, um, I suppose meaning in Chinese culture that was, that was drying up well, um, well, um, inland. And so I really did become interested in trying to explore China's contemporary, as you'd mentioned, Chinese contemporary water issues from a historical uh, from a historical uh, framework and and I guess part of that, if I could sort of talk a little bit, widen the aperture a little bit, my sure. my the longer range or by the longer trajectory or the wider trajectory of my research interests really are how how states in the 20th century have sought to enroll uh, modern science and modern technology, as well as to su- subscribe the interests of, of, of modern trained technical personnel into the state building uh, enterprise. And so that, the, the study of the Yellow River really kind of fits in this longer term intellectual in, uh, interest in the history of the environment and the history of science and technology in 20th century China.
1: Great. Now, the introduction of the book lays out um, the sort of fundamental arguments um, that the book is making, or at least two of them, and you've talked a little bit about this already, right? One is that contemporary China's water challenges are historically grounded, and this becomes really, really important later on, and also that these historical realities, as you put them, are not going to disappear anytime soon. And so it's actually, there, there are important stakes for understanding this history and understanding the way it's going to shape not just contemporary water challenges in China, which mm. mean, you know, ultimately global water challenges, mm-hmm. but also how to think about what's going to happen and how to deal with that in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the introduction, you also lay out um, a concept that's going to become very important for the book. And this is the idea of a technology complex. So can you maybe get us started by talking a little bit about that? For you, what's important for us to understand about mm-hmm. um, the notion of a technology complex insofar as you're using it in the book?
0: Yeah, yeah that's, that's a, um, a, a, a notion that I had adopted um, from Arnold Pacey, who um, wrote extensively on the history of, of technology um, over really the past several decades. And I, I adopt that term really to mean the entire set of um, factors or forces that lead uh, or that are inputs into a particular approach, in this case to water management. So certainly they're included in the technology complex is uh, technology choice, Um, certainly in the 20th century, oftentimes that meant industrial technologies with the capacity to build, you know, very large structures, uh, concrete and, um, hydroelectric generators, those kinds of, those kinds of industrial technologies. But it also refers to different approaches to, uh, um, to water management and water engineering. It includes a set of policy preferences or a set of preferences perhaps in the social, cultural, economic realm that, uh, uh technology choice uh policy choices are meant to uh uh attain or a certain set of goals that these policies are geared towards it also includes um certain elements in terms of the mobilization of labor uh it includes um uh, the kinds of goals where whereby water uh is sought to be used so by in terms of the technology complex it's that the entire entire package of technology, policies. I would even include within that the use of, of symbols and the manipula- manipulation of symbolic values of water and the Yellow River in particular. So an entire, I guess, uh, as I mentioned, package of goals and the means to reach those goals as well.
1: Great. Now another entity in the book that has important um, symbolic value and also material value is the area that the book focuses on and this is the North China Plain. So you introduce the North China Plain um, early in the book as a kind of birthplace or as something that's understood to be a kind of birthplace of Chinese civilization and culture and the first chapter takes us into the kind of ecology and environmental materiality of the North China Plain to lay a foundation for what's to come. So to kind of bring listeners into this, for you, what are the most important aspects of that ecology that we need to understand in order as listeners and readers to understand what's to come?
0: Yeah, well, the I think um, certainly, again, my, my point of departure is the fact that the North China Plain has uh, um, for quite some time and continues to be really one of the main agricultural uh, production areas um, in China and the challenge of maintaining – uh, agricultural production on the North China Plain has for centuries and, again, continues to be maintaining an ecological balance whereby agriculture can continue to be practiced and agricultural communities continue can continue to or sort of recreate their uh, basis of of material sustainability, if you will, and really the challenge for communities as well as as well as the state for uh, you know well into the well back into the imperial period and and certainly well into the modern period has been to to maintain that ecological balance. And it's a precarious ecological balance, um, as I explore in the first couple chapters of the book. The North China Plain uh, it, its its climate experiences a great deal of variability across years, as well as within um, within any particular in any particular year. So, uh, drought uh, certainly has been one traditional source of of um, stress to the ecology of the North China Plain. But because of the um intra annual uh, disparities of rainfall uh, rainfall can indeed and usually does occur uh, during the summer months and can occur in very very intense periods and so flooding has also been has also been the other uh, challenge that um, agriculturalists on the North China Plain and the state uh, have had to have had to manage and they've done that in various ways but certainly one of the principal ways in which the state and communities have sought to attain some some uh, ecological balance is, is, to, uh, is to control water in an effective way and particularly from the state's point of view is to manage the Yellow River in such a way as to provide some predictability for agriculturalists in the state by, by uh, creating structures and defense systems that will alleviate the threat of flooding uh, on, the north, on the North China Plain.
1: Now, the ecology of the North China Plain, as you bring us into in Chapter 2, was transformed by human action. And a lot of that action had to do with precisely these efforts to manage water and some uh, mismanagement as well of water mm. as we see it um, in Chapter 2, especially in the imperial period. Mm. So you, ta- you take us into the stories in Chapter 2 of, in particular, two main figures who become really important um, insofar as they provide a kind of mythology or they, they become kind of, if not mythological figures, then kind of uh, figureheads or touchstones that are continually called upon and recalled in mm-hmm. narratives and discourses of water management well into the contemporary period. So the first one is You the Great. Um, and I won't ask you to talk too much about <laughs> you, the great, right. Um, but sort of, you, you mentioned for listeners who are interested in a kind of, Um, modern and contemporary calling upon of major figures and sort of heroic figures in state discourses and other kinds of discourses. They might be interested in knowing that Yu the Great is one of those figures, and you talk about him um, in particular in the context of a kind of ethos of directing the waters and driving statecraft in China. So he becomes an important touchstone. But then once we get into the late imperial period, which is really a very important period for this chapter, we also get into the story of another figure who becomes really important, who listeners may be less familiar with, and this is the figure, the 16th century figure, Pan Shun. He becomes known as the greatest water hero in Chinese history later on, and then he recurs in this story a whole lot. Can you, for listeners, just say a little bit about who is this guy, Pan Jishun, Shun? And what's important about his approach to water management? Sort of why is he such a big deal? And why does he become important um, in stories later on?
0: Yeah, yeah, ji Sun is really a, 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 a fascinating figure. Um, and he, he, he becomes really, as you, as you suggest, um, one of the great water heroes in, in Chinese historical, historical memory. And really the challenge that um, – that, that faced as I think may be obvious the challenge that faced um, all states um, in the Imperial period and again and and well beyond was to indeed um, to create a course for the Yellow River that was as as permanent as as possible given given the challenges of of, 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 of silt in the river and sedimentation and so in effect there were two Broad chances or two broad approaches, and these kind of get bound up, or at least they're presented in the in the in the in the imperial various imperial discourses on water control. They be, they become associated with different sort of philosophical schools. Um, I won't go into that uh, in too much depth. But in any event, the, in any event, the the two kind of broad approaches to thinking about or theorizing, if you will, Yellow River control was to first of all set the dikes. Far apart or widely apart to allow the river some latitude to meander, although certainly not to meander across the broad North China plain, because that would be simply too destructive, but to allow, you know, a certain degree of space between the, uh, between the dikes to allow the yellow river, as I mentioned, to, to meander, to sort of find its own way to allow itself, if you will, to sort of manage, to, to flood in a kind of managed way. Pan Shun disa- disagreed with that, um, that particular approach, and he argued that dikes should be set in a very narrow uh, way, that is to say very close to the main channel that the yellow river was was then flowing through, and have uh, narrowly set dikes and very high dikes to restrict the aperture of the river, if you will, to restrict the river in order to speed the flow of the river, that would in turn help carry sediment out to uh, out into the into the into the sea, into the Bohai Sea. So, uh, you know, finding a prescription or arguing that that was a, an effective prescription to um, to to combat the sedimentation problem in the river and. Panji Sun's prescription was 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 really quite effective, I think it's fair to say, for um for a number of decades. Um although the position of the the manager of the Yellow River was certainly a very highly politicized one, and he found himself in and out of office as the as the director of the Yellow River administration on several different occasions. But but nonetheless, Panjisun his his legacy really rests upon this kind of theoretical approach uh to Yellow River management that by and large provided the blueprint for Yellow River management really down to the modern period. And so um so his approach uh really does explain why again in China's historical memory he is thought of as you know one of the greatest uh um, members in the pantheon of Chinese water managers
1: now the red the chapter takes us into some of the most significant ecological changes that emerge in late Imperial China and that go hand in hand with um, really kind of uh, dramatic demographic growth as well these include deforestation they include breakdowns and in ecological balance and um, some other things and so listeners who are particularly interested in those histories there's a lot in chapter two that talks about the kind of late imperial context mm-hmm. now as we move into the late 19 19th century, there's also a pretty major event in 1855. The Yellow River changes course. And you talk about the consequences here for management of water. There's a retreat from state management of the rivers of the North China Plain, right? And there's a sort of a larger yeah. shift in statecraft. Mm-hmm. And there's also a kind of deterioration of the ecological foundations of that plane. Mm-hmm. Now by the late late 19th century, the plane had entered a period, as you put it here, of environmental breakdown. And this breakdown lasts well into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk about the consequences of that um, in a bit. Now the the third chapter um, takes us further into this late nineteenth century context, and it looks at the consequences of the internationalization of China um, into the twentieth century. And it looks carefully at different Japanese, American, and Chinese water management plans in that context. Mm-hmm. So, as a result of the kind of uh, the major North China famine in uh, the late nineteenth century, there are uh, sort of renewed interest in water management. Now, in this context, and here's where I'd like to kind of throw the ball back to you, there's um, an interest in, and you describe an interest in, looking to modern Western hydraulic science and engineering Mm -hmm. as a way to deal with some of these problems. So could you tell us a little bit about that for you? What are some of the most important aspects of this look to uh, modern Western hydraulic science and engineering for the history that you're telling in this part of the book?
0: Yeah, it's... um... So I think it it has sort of both broad and rather more specific kinds of of uh, consequences for um, for my book or for my um, treatment of of Yellow River management over the late 19th and 20th centuries um, from from. Perhaps the broader perspective we get this in the 20th century. We, as you mentioned, the internationalization of water management, and, and in particular, Yellow River management, whereby there are a, uh, a set of uh, foreign technical experts that make their way to China, um, principally from the continent, from continental Europe, and from from North America, and they bring with them um, a variety of different tools um, that are certainly, you know, novel uh, to water management in China. So a variety of, you know, scientific kinds of instruments, um, approaches to measuring the Uh, the hydrographic nature of, or the hydraulic nature of flows in China, um, and other kinds of instrumentation that certainly represent an augmentation of, of water management or the, uh, water management practices in China. Um, and so the whole sort of 20th century uh, sort of notion of hydraulic engineering as it's shaped by these broader notions of modernity had a really very important impact, uh, in China, uh, both as I'd mentioned as foreign technical experts, um, become interested in Yellow River management and also because domestic constituencies, uh, in China is as well become interested in in notions of modern hydraulic engineer and, for example, set up a, a host of different technical training institutions in China during the, well, beginning in the early 20th century but really lasting throughout the Republican period. And these technical, domestic technical training institutions really by, certainly by 1949, have generated or have produced a really very large um, cadre of of, of of Chinese technical experts uh, in in the hydraulic engineering uh, world, and so um, at least in terms of the modern science and modern technological components of hydraulic engineering, this period uh, before 1949 is a critically important one. Uh, on the other hand, or maybe perhaps on the on the flip side of that coin. Is this widespread perception, both domestically and externally, that you know the Yellow River in particular, but the whole ecological package of, of water and drought and famine have rendered the North China Plain uh, in such an ecological state that it really is the is the the the, the 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 image that 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 people have of China, and certainly is the symbol for Certain domestic uh, constituencies that you know that China has really reached the nadir, if you will, of its of its of its of its modern historical experience, and so that as well is certainly one source or one um, source of motivation to try and reassert some kind of. Uh, hydraulic control over the Yellow River ba- Valley, um, um, as, as I mentioned, as it had deteriorated, or as you had mentioned, as it had deteriorated over the 19th, over the course of the late 19th century.
1: Now, in terms of statecraft as well, we see new forms of bureaucratic organization coming up, not just to train um, engineers mm-hmm. and managers, but also um, a, a kind of, uh, you mentioned the Yellow River Conservancy. Commission, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. actually established in 1933. And this Mm -hmm. becomes really, really important in the context of the book. Can you talk a little bit about this Conservancy Commission?
0: Yeah. Well, again, I think probably of of the things that I had just mentioned in perhaps a bit more of a scattered way, really this your, – your, the Yellow River Conservancy Commission really does kind of help us focus how these different currents, if you will, of modernity and modern hydraulic engineering and technical training, how those all kind of crystallize into uh, an institution that is very much um, – very much dedicated to reasserting hydraulic control uh, over the Yellow River, particularly in its in its lower reaches and so the Yellow River Conservancy commission is 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 part of a broader i think it 's fair to say uh, nationalist government effort to try and modernize uh, its Bureaucratic structures to to, to modernize um, a uh, a bureaucratic system, at least in the hydraulic engineering realm, by recruiting both foreign and domestic technical expertise. Uh, so, for example, if we go back to the notion of of water heroes, um, 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 certainly Li Jiru, who Uh, works with the Yellow River Conservancy Commission, uh, was trained in Europe, comes back to China, and becomes probably the... The uh, most prominent uh, water hero of the 20th century in China, as he works uh, assiduously on Yellow River conservancy and other conservancy efforts uh, in China, so it really does represent, I think, a, a turning point whereby the Yellow River Conservancy Commission, if you will, internalizes these um, these uh, modernist notions of hydraulic engineering, and in particular,ly really seek to exploit water resources for all the productive purposes that 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 modernity can imagine, uh, if you will, in terms of agricultural production, transportation, as well as the generation of hydroelectricity to to power industrial development.
1: Great. Now, what we'll see later on, um, in a little bit, is that this Yellow River Conservancy Commission that's established. 1949, right, that's established in 1933, actually goes through some changes under the communist government, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that's a really interesting, I think, mm-hmm. aspect of the kind of um, mm-hmm. history of um, organizations and bureaucracy. But before we get there, um, you mention also I think really importantly in this earlier part of the story, that this is a period. You know, you talked about the nationalist government. That there's also a kind of development of a national Chinese identity that's embedded in this landscape of the Yellow mm-hmm. River and the North China Plain. And you talk about the importance of the construction of a kind of national landscape in this context. Um, would you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So, so as I'm as I as you certainly are familiar with. Um, during the 1920s and the 1930s there was you know hotly contested notions of what it meant to be China what it meant to be chinese uh, a great number of of really highly um, politicized but I think it's also fair to say highly emotional um, um, conversations about about you know the nation of or the nature of of, of the Chinese nation the, ch- the nature of of Chinese ethnic identity national identity, and sort of within that kind of swirling conversation uh, in terms of 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 coming to understand what it means to 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 have a 20th century Chinese national identity within that kind of swirling conversation, landscape was really very much a part of that conversation, and uh, and certainly the Yellow River, um, with its um, uh, with its sort of cultural identification with uh, the rise of Chinese civilization, really began to. Uh, well I, I, I should say it per- continued to have uh, an important part in that the, in that national conversation and um, as we see after one thousand nine hundred and forty nine the identification or the continued identification with the Yellow River Valley um, and national identity. That kind of discourse and the kind of symbols that that entailed began to be manipulated, right, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but began to be manipulated, um, reinterpreted to advance the cause of the reengineering of the Yellow River in ways that would lead to, if you will, a a rebirth of, of Chinese civilization and a rebirth of the Chinese nation. That's
1: right. Thank you. Now, as we, before we make it to the communists and what happens after 1949, I'll just mention for listeners who might be interested, um, also in this chapter, chapter three, you talk about a few things that I won't ask you to, you know, to go into more detail, but I'll just mark, um, there's this really interesting moment where, um, the sort of the blowing up of, uh, Huayunco, um, is, um, basically, um, troops blow up part of, um, uh, the yellow, this sort of water management system, in order to use a Yellow River flood against Japanese troops. So, this really interesting um, Yellow River and water management as warcraft um, mm-hmm. element of the story. And there's also a discussion of Japanese wartime planning, so proposals to develop the productive powers mm-hmm. of the river for irrigation, for transport, for power, and sort of uh, post war reconstruction and U.S. engineering advice. And there's a lot of discussion here. For um, listeners who are interested in the histories of engineering, on uh, multipurpose engineering and sort of a- attempts to approach um, water management from that direction. Now, Chapter Four, um, as we move further into the story, considers how struggles to build communism in China also transformed this landscape, this national landscape we've been talking about, and looks at water management on the North China Plain after 1949. Now, it asks, among other things, how did state and nation planning planning goals, state and nation building goals, shape the administration of water on the plain? And what were the longer-term consequences for the region? Now in this chapter, you talk about something that you mentioned as perhaps being one of the seeds of this book, right? Work on the Whye River and the Whye River Project specifically. So could you maybe bring us into um, this part of the book by talking about the Whye River Project? What's important for us to understand about um, that initiative and that set of um, plans in order for us to understand the larger arguments that you're using that to make in this part of the book?
0: Yeah. Well, the uh, really the emphasis um, on restoring ecological balance after 1949 uh, was initiated. Um, uh, on the Hawaii River Valley, um, and the Hawaii River, along with the Yellow River, um, really were the central components of this ecological disorder that both rivers were, uh, largely in, um, in distress after, well, before and after 1949. But the state identified the Hawaii River, uh, as the first project, I think in part because it looked as if it was a, a more manageable Project than um, a much larger and perhaps much more problematic Yellow River project, and so the state indeed initially embarked on um, a control project along the Yellow River, and in and in part, the state was also very um, conscious, and the party was very conscious about. The, um, the, the the social well the econ the ecological economic and social and ultimately political uh, dislocation that was part of the Hawaii River Valley um, certainly since the since the late Qing, and the Hawaii River Valley during the pre-1949 period was was certainly a, a an area that the, the the party the Chinese Communist Party had a great deal of success in uh, recruiting members and organizing even organizing some Hawaii River uh, Conservancy projects during uh, during the uh, Japanese occupation period and even during the Civil War, so it had this kind of history, if you will, with the Hawaii River Valley, but it was also you know quite well aware that it should um, dedicate some resources very quickly to that area because the same kind of dislocation that uh helped bring the CCP you know to to political power you know certainly could also be a continuing source of of political um political uh, agreement uh, after 1949 as well so at least in terms of in terms of the project itself in terms of the management of of the project i think the huai river uh the huai river uh reconstruction really sort of pointed to um it pointed to the manner or the technology complex, if you will, that um, that the government after 1949 might uh, pursue other projects. So it uh, relied quite heavily on local institutions to recruit labor. It um, it began to take advantage of some Soviet models in water management, um, and it really did also seek to uh, manage this in a central. Fashion and did seek to apply um, sort of industrial technology in the capacity that it, it that it could, because of course in the immediate 1949 period, sort of industrial technologies, if you will, sort of collectively were were rather were rather limited in nature um, after the after the Civil War. So it sort of pointed to a, a a technology complex, a Soviet style, if I could use that shorthand, a Soviet style kind of technology complex that we we would think from that early point on would be largely the kinds of technology complex that the state and party would pursue at that from that point on but as we know and i suspect you might be asking about this the technology complex did indeed change or did um um go in different directions after that hawai river project
1: right now as um i'll mention for listeners who might be particularly interested in this in the um Uh, Along with the discussion of this Soviet-inspired technology complex, there's also a really interesting account in this part of the chapter of exhibitions, right? Um, You talk Mm -hmm. about this sort of Yellow River exhibition, Mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, a really interesting moment in this story. And in part, um, this is one of the places where we very clearly see the evocation of a historical memory that includes some Mm -hmm. of the figures that we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. Mm Shun and Yu Yu the Great. Now, along with um, this importation of a kind of Soviet um, set of uh, principles and Soviet advice for managing and creating this technology complex, you also talk about the importance in this period of mobilizing the peasantry, right, for Mm -hmm. local projects that would, um, albeit... Being local would collectively transform the landscape. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a super duper important part, at least from my perspective, I mm-hmm. as a fund reader yeah. of this story. So, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. Well, I think the other the other interesting thing about the Hawaii project, uh, uh, in addition to it sort of pointing to a particular technology complex, was that the state um, the state did have some problems um, in organizing, and some rather serious problems in terms of of, of labor recruitment. Uh, which as you mentioned uh principally relied upon um um local political structures and local labor had some difficulty in in recruiting that labor but perhaps even more important ha- importantly had some difficulties uh maintaining labor discipline on these problem on these projects and Uh, and part of, part of the labor discipline issue was that, um, the remuneration in many instances, uh, was felt by the workers to be just simply inadequate. So there were some instances of strikes, uh, what would, we would think of as labor, labor slowdowns. There were these, um, these examples of protest, um, on the part of, 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 of labor, uh, on these projects, on the Hawaii River projects, the state really um, carefully sought to manage that, and I think in some ways was effective in ameliorating some of those problems as it began um, to pursue projects on on the Yellow River. And so, at least by the advent, well, by 1955 or 1956, I think the state had attained a um, you know a, a reasonable. Uh, um s- design for recruiting and for conducting uh, organizing and conducting labor uh, on the on the yellow river projects but of course uh, the nature of of That work does begin, does begin to change and the whole technology complex, of course, does begin to change very very dramatically with the uh, onset of what we would refer to as the little leap forward and certainly the great leap forward uh, uh, later.
1: That's right. And chapter five actually really nicely takes us into this. So as we move um, from chapter four to chapter five, we move to a transformation in the technology complex. So in chapter four, as we just kind of talked about, we saw the development of a Soviet model of water management and development. In chapter five, there's a shift in the tenor of development that favored what you call a Maoist technology complex. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of really interesting things happening here. Um, but to kind of set the stage for listeners, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how you would characterize, for you, um, this some of the major, most important features of what you're calling the Maoist technology complex? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, it's um, it's uh, you know what's interesting to me is if we just sort of raise the idea of the Soviet technological complex uh, 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 again for just a moment that it was it was really very much sort of the Soviet take on what we might think of as a modernist um, a more broadly modernist technology complex um, and so as I had mentioned you know a, a valorization of central planning. Of of um, advanced um, industrial technologies, um, technical expertise, um, and then of course when we get to uh, when we get to the um, uh, the, the change or um, the um, uh, introduction of the Maoist technological complex, we really begin to see. Um, and, I, and we we should mention that. Um, for whatever reasons, and, and certainly among those reasons is that, um, the leadership of the party, certainly centered on Mao, um, you know, began to feel that the sorts of, um, uh, um, agricultural and industrial, uh, um, production levels were just simply not, um, advancing quickly enough, and so he felt a different sort of paradigm might advance industrial and agricultural production on a, on a, on a more rapid plane. But in any event, the, the change in this approach to water management and this Maoist industrial complex um, eschewed Soviet planning in the sense that um, it sought to um, place greater planning uh, authority at the local level. Um, particularly at the, uh, communal level by which time, right, China was, uh, in the process of reorganizing, uh, social and economic life in the countryside. So, uh, local management of projects, um, a valorization of perhaps more traditional kinds of, um, approaches to water management—that is to say, um, a, uh, a a lessening or um, a um, um, a uh, Soviet or, or technical advice or. Um, industrial technologies being very much uh, eschewed in favor of local methodologies and local methods, um, and local investment as well, which was uh, certainly contrary or different than the sorts of uh, uh, centralized investments that were driving the Soviet technology complex before that, and local knowledge, as I think I had mentioned, as well, as opposed to technical expertise, and so this was uh, – this. Approach or this technology complex certainly also included, right, exhortations, moral exhortations um, from the party that were uh, particularly important and certainly were impossible to ignore. Um, And so this all combined with these moral exhortations to really um, increase the pace of the transformation of the landscape. Uh, by uh, organizing mass labor mm-hmm. to dig irrigation canals, to uh, engage in 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 uh, strengthening of dike works on the Yellow River, and so indeed, this did uh, did result in a, a really rather dramatic change in the terms of managing water on the North China Plain.
1: That's right, and you talk here about. Um I mean, many listeners have probably heard about the Great Leap Forward, mm-hmm. but they may not be as familiar with um, the Great Leap Irrigation Campaign, right? Yeah. So this is a really interesting, I think, part of this chapter. And you talk about the importance of not only mobilizing labor, but mobilizing pools of unemployed labor, mm-hmm. right, Um, to dig mm-hmm. these uh, irrigation channels and these reservoirs. There's also a really interesting aesthetic component to this, um, as you put it here, there's a new concept of landscape beauty that comes out of this as the land is transformed by these channels that are being dug, by reservoirs, ponds and dams. And so the kind of aesthetic component of this is actually also mm-hmm. really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot more going on right, right in this chapter. <laughs> um, I mean there's a there's a whole project we haven't talked about that I'll just mark and mention for listeners, the Sunmencha project, right? Which is I'm- begun in um, in the previous chapter under the previous regime, and it really kind of transforms um, and becomes a a major issue um, under this one. Um, Now, there's a lot of discussion in this chapter about that, but also about more broadly some of the outcomes, right, the important outcomes of these efforts and this Maoist technology complex, the Maoist water management um, policies that you write about here. You talk about, um, in part, um, the importance of sort of massive efforts after the Cultural Revolution to repair some of the damage that is being done um, in this period. And you also talk about the importance of a kind of aggressive exploitation that stretches the water resources of the plain. So could you talk a little bit about that? What were some of the most important outcomes of this legacy of Maoist water management after
0: 1949? Yeah, well, the... the um you know, there was, along with kind of the central goals uh, or principal goals of the Great Leap Forward in a variety of different um, sectors of society and, and certainly the economy, there was the ideal of expanding irrigated agriculture as quickly as possible and to in turn, right, expand uh, production in, in in the agricultural realm as quickly as possible by bringing water to the uh, bringing water to the fields, um, and certainly this was this was accomplished um, in 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 the short term, or perhaps in the very short term. It was really remarkable how these mobilizations, and we think of sort of agricultural society in general on the North China Plain mobilize the collective resources and collective energies to really expand irrigated agriculture in an extraordinary way. I don't have any, any statistics, um, at my, at the tips of my fingers, but certainly there are enough of them in the book and they continue to, you know, really continue to kind of blow me away in terms of the, the outcomes of, of this work in terms of, you know, expansion of irrigated agriculture. But, but the method by which, um, this expansion was achieved, that is to say, with, you know, utmost speed, uh, by relying on local knowledge, that's not to say that local knowledge was, you know, valuable, but I think the goals of the, uh, the goals, the overriding goals of the, of the projects tended to simplify this kind of knowledge in ways that i rather suspect that local agriculturalists local farmers local peasants were quite aware of potentially the deleterious effect on these massive irrigation projects might have in in the long term but in any event some of the some of the uh, some of the consequences were indeed there was so much emphasis placed on bringing water to the fields um, that there 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 was you know generally a an insufficient uh, concern with how to drain fields how to drain water off of the fields if you will so there was some some very significant water logging there was um, significant um, um, um salinization of water or of land that occurred on the north china plain and that was recognized you know on a fairly early point because of the the effects were really quite rapid in their in their outcome these deleterious effects were rapid in their outcome so there was certainly a retrenchment um in the in the uh, post great leap forward period but as you mentioned during uh the 1960s there was again a concerted effort to expand uh, irrigated agriculture, and the lesson from the Great Leap Forward was that the water resources perhaps um, would not be sufficient, or surface water resources would not be sufficient to expand uh, agriculture in the way that uh, the the state wanted. So instead, there was right this massive exploitation of groundwater that began in the 1960s in an effort to right find an adequate source of water to attain this uh, attain this expansion of irrigated agriculture and that 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 continued and developed apace. Um, and so uh, groundwater irrigated agriculture during the 1960s and early 1970s really did expand at a remarkable, remarkable rate. But again, one of the long-term outcomes of that, uh, of groundwater use, was a, a pretty, pretty profound lowering of groundwater levels on the North China Plain in, in, certain, areas, in certain areas leading to land subsidence and other rather serious, uh, serious issues so um, you know the, the difficulty I think that I had um, in assessing you know assessing the outcomes of these of the great Leap forward um, and subsequent efforts at expanding irrigated agriculture is that there were a re- there was a remarkable expansion. It came at a price, but what was the net what was the net outcome here and I think you know the net outcome was indeed um, an expansion of of production in the agricultural realm, um, but an expansion that came at a cost that really wouldn't be felt until the reform period, when there was this increased consumption of of, of water. I know we'll probably will probably get to that um, soon. That but, uh, but yeah, that was sort of the dilemma that faced me: is how do how do you ultimately kind of judge the net outcomes of of this? And in, in you know, from a certain perspective. Um, you know, even though demand was suppressed um, or that consumption was suppressed by the state through its system of, of food rationing. But nonetheless, uh, you know, an expansion of agricultural production met a rapidly growing population in China, um, you know, during the 1960s and the 1970s. So, um, you know, some successes, but some very important consequences of that success, I think, is a fair way to is a fair way to put it.
1: That's right. And the um we'll get to those consequences fairly briefly, but uh, but importantly, um, when we get to the sixth chapter, which is coming up. But I just want to mark um, for listeners before we get there, an important part of this chapter, at least in terms of its contribution to, and really, I think, revision of some dominant historiography of environment and um, history of environment in China, is that the chapter on Maoist uh, policies, wa- Maoist water management, also makes a point that these the campaign's Right, the, um, these kind of efforts weren't a unique outcome of a kind of Mao's war on nature, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and this mm-hmm. has been the kind of dominant, yeah. dominant discourse. These are yeah. consistent with long-standing yes. efforts to order the waters, and that's really important because mm-hmm. it's one of the, um, I think, major contributions yeah. of the book is to show look, this wasn't just about Mao. Mm-hmm. This was a continuation of a history of water management policies that stretched uh, way back. Before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I may be getting ahead of ourselves here in the conversation. But I'll take your. I'll take your comment as an as a as an invitation, maybe mm-hmm. to, again, to broaden the aperture here. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and um, certainly one of the. Principal goals, as I think I had mentioned uh, principal goals of of the book was to look at these contemporary challenges in you know, in a longer term what the French would say is in the long durée right the long the long run of deep history and um, so I, so when I look at this, when I look at the, at, at the, at the, at the Maoist era, certainly, you know, we need to put the Maoist era, I mean, there are several layers here. We need to put the Maoist era, you know, look at it in itself, in its own context, in its own developmental sort of choices and paradigms. But we need to, we need to look at the layer below that, if you will, of, of 20th century, notions of 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 water management in the context of of modernity multi-use of uh, water um, engineering practices. And then upon – and even below that layer, as you suggest, is this sort of foundational layer whereby many of these, what we would think of as modern hydraulic practices, are very much embedded in a traditional approach, if you will, to needing to – or the imperative of managing the Yellow River and managing the waters very carefully. Um, on the North China Plain. So sorry about the bit of diversion there, but no, I really, no. I, I really love the point that you brought up about that. Thank you. No,
1: not at all. It's really, really important. So there, there's a lot of stuff, right, going on in this last, um, really in these last two chapters of the book, but certainly in the last chapter of the book um, that we won't be able to do justice to. But I'll kind of mention some things and then invite you to, to speak okay. a little bit about them. So chapter six really takes us into um, now and into the future. And it looks at not just the outcomes um, and the kind of impact on um, uh, China's waterscape and Chinese um, environmental management policies that were wrought by Maoist policies, but also looks at the ways that those challenges are really compounded by the impacts of global warming and, and pollution and these kinds of issues. You talk um, in great detail, and I think very importantly, about the challenge of the pollution of surface waters, um, specifically looking at the Huai River Valley and kind of cancer in the villages there is really important. And also um, you talk about the desiccation of the Yellow River in 1997. So you kind of, you know, mentioned that briefly at the very beginning. That's an important part of the story Later on, and there are some really interesting films and other stories that are that come out of this um, part of the book um, that point us to some really important, I think, cultural, literary, and cinematic responses to and engagements with these these problems. So this chapter also talks about some current challenges faced by China in managing its own water resources. So in the limited time that we have, um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about this. So I'll just invite you um, to to (laughs) talk for you. What what are some of the most important important of those challenges? And and can you talk about that? Yeah,
0: well, they certainly are. There certainly are contemporary challenges, and I guess again, one of the um, one of the arguments I make is that when we when we think of or when we look at um, contemporary challenges of water in China, more generally, but specifically on the North China Plain, um, you know, we I, I think the the tendency has been to think that those have you know been generated. Uh, during the last 30 years of reform when, um, you know, accelerated industrial development, accelerated agricultural development, accelerated uh, urbanization has generated these forces impelling greater water consumption. And th- that is certainly true, but I think the story really goes beyond that in that the uh, the waterscape, if you will, uh, upon which the modern reforms have been have been based, was a waterscape that really was uh, had been shaped in important ways by by Maoist practices, and I guess to put it more succinctly, that that uh, the water resources were already. Um, you know, compromised in the sense of there were already clear, um, um, problems with scarcity, you know, very early on in the reform period. So, um, you know, I do make the argument that the Maoist period certainly cast a long shadow in terms of water resources over the reform period. But so having, so having said that, given the fact that China does indeed uh, or is faced with, um, you know, important constraints in in its water in its water resources. Really, the you know the challenge for China has been and will continue to be coming up with some kind of system of allocating those limited uh, water resources in ways that not only uh, continue to, um, to to fuel. Uh, economic growth in the modern sector and continue to, uh, support, um, uh, urbanization, but also to allocate water in ways that is going to help sustain, uh, agriculture and to sustain rural society. And so there's been, you know, a great deal of discussion over the past, you know, 10 or 20 years about how China can reform its its water management system to a, to, a, to attain those goals and it's a very, very difficult task I think from the experience in other uh, from other uh, contexts, cultural contexts that urban water users, uh, you know, when we look at sort of the trajectory of industrial development and, and urbanization in other areas, you know, that urban water users have and industrial water users have invariably um, um managed to uh, receive an, an increased allocation um, uh, uh, of water. That is to say, these forces really are, are more powerful than the forces in rural areas. But in China, the um, uh, The state and party really has to manage that very carefully because of certain traditions in the the, the countryside that are important to maintain. Certainly social and and economic and political stability, one of them. But the other issue that China faces that many I think many countries are very concerned about is, is resource, uh, is resource scarcity, uh, and resource self sufficiency. So, along with energy, uh, self sufficiency, uh, food self sufficiency in China has been a very, very powerful, uh, consideration for a variety of reasons. I think, um, China has some distrust. Uh, with being engaged in international markets to the degree that they might have to, so there is this imperative, I think, to try and maintain agricultural productions, uh, agricultural production as high as possible to to limit China's exposure to international food markets. And so again, that goal represents an enormous challenge for China in how it is going to how it's going to to, to allocate its scarce water resources. And so there has certainly been this shift. Um, from an emphasis of water supply, that is to say, invest in increasing the, uh, in increasing water supply, uh, been a shift to try and manage demand by restructuring, um, restructuring demand. But nonetheless, we still continue to see in China, because of the importance of water, we continue to see a reliance upon these large, Technical, these large engineering solutions, uh, like the South to North Water Diversion Project, that will bring water from the Yangtze River Valley to the North China Plain, and what is probably going to be the largest engineering project ever. Um, that and, and certainly that kind of element or continued. Uh, character of China's water management is, is certainly very much premised in a 20th century and in an imperial practices of the state engaged in these large, very large engineering projects.
1: So David, we've come to the end of our time um, and we've come to our conclusion and I want to thank you so much for um, being part of this. Now I know there's a, a lot we talked about. There's of course a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's a very, very rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, something
0: that m- that may be of interest, and, it's, and I bring it up because it's something that I had obsessed about probably <laughs> on a daily basis when writing this book, is that um, yeah, it's um, you know, the book is an attempt, I think, to try and in a way straddle two different kinds of of approaches if you will um i mean i i as i think we've mentioned really the the point of departure for the book uh, is the contemporary water challenges that China faces, and so it is in a sense kind of an environmental studies book. It's a, it's kind of a uh, um, um, policy sort of book. But um, again, what really my goal was was to try to to provide historical layers that help us to better understand the development of this. Uh, water issue, and that is you know looking at the layers of the imperial period upon which are layered sort of the twentieth century modernist pers- perspectives, and then of course we have the post forty nine China perspectives, which um, you know kind of imbibe. Uh, both tradition and modernity um, in their approaches in their approaches to water, and even with an eye to thinking about how Pan Jishun, right? We talked about Pan Jishun, how he continues to live in a sense by providing the broad parameters of how to approach Yellow River management. So I'm trying to kind of you know the challenge for me in writing the book was to try and kind of keep an eye on you know the contemporary period while at the same time providing at least a plausible or as convincing as possible historical explanation for the development of these contemporary water challenges. So I'm hoping the book will appeal to, you know, both uh, an audience that's interested in history, but also an audience that's interested in contemporary environmental uh, issues as well.
1: Absolutely. I think it absolutely succeeds um, on those fronts. Thank you. (laughs) And now that the book is out, and congratulations um, on a book that I think does really effectively speak across disciplines and fields. What's next for you what's currently inspiring you yeah well I, you know i've
0: got a, a couple of projects in mind, and I have to admit i'm I'm kind of vacillating um, between the two of them it's I have colleagues and maybe you're one of them, Carla, that can sort of do two or three projects you know kind of simultaneously i don't have I don't the patience or the uh or the uh yeah the focus or concentration to be able to manage two different ones so i'm thinking I'm thinking about um again sort of. Keeping in the uh, keeping with the environmental f- historical theme, um, I, I'm I'm becoming more interested in the Yangtze River, I guess. Um, and I'm uh, with all of the the, the talk about uh, extinctions, right? Recently, and and this idea that we're in a period, uh, of perhaps the most egregious period of mass extinction. That I'm that I'm. Have become interested in the story of a uh, a freshwater dolphin that um, uh, had as its habitat the Yangtze River uh, for you know for many many centuries uh, or if not millennia uh, that dolphin um, became extinct. Um, uh, by all accounts, in the 1990s, and the dolphin had also had a very important sort of place in the in the in the cultural history of the Yangtze River Valley. So I'm kind of interested in in coming up with or thinking about a narrative of of extinction. It's not one that's particularly uh, um, an optimistic story, and it's it's I think one of the one of the issues that I have continuing in the environmental historical realm is that I don't you know there's so many declensionist stories that uh, that I'd like to try and you know try to craft uh, environmental historical narrative that isn 't sort of dominated by that but i 'm also interested in one of the American engineers that shows up in in, in my book that we just spoke about. Um, uh, uh, O.J. Todd, who I know many uh, historians of, of modern China are familiar with, but he's a very interesting figure, and I think represents um, some interesting developments both in terms of the engineering discipline and the notion of engineering in 20th century society that I'd like to explore a little bit too. So, in any event, those are a couple of projects that I've got in mind um, at the moment.
1: Awesome, dolphins and engineers. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well. It's- Best of luck with this project, David, and thank you again for making the time. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Carla. I really appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.